Hey, Kara. How are you? I feel like a big, fat, hot turd. How are you? Uh, I mean, physically, I don't. I think mentally, I feel a little bit like a big, fat, hot turd. So for everyone listening in, this is going to be the first podcast that we have recorded during the pandemic and during our shelter-in-place, stay-at-home orders. So we're all going to be a little bit scattered, I think. Yeah, well, we saw this coming, though. You were sick and couldn't make it to Seattle, but I was afraid I'd... I'd pick it up while I was in Seattle because we knew it was coming then. We saw it in China. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, they're going to keep having this thing in Seattle. Well, I'll go because I want to go to Seattle. But I was really afraid that Seattle would get hit first because of the large uh, West Coast Asian yeah. presence. And in fact, it did. But of course, New York has gotten it even New worse. New York has been hit so hard. It's really shocking to watch that and very upsetting. It is, it is. And then uh, my department had a tragedy, so I've been just leveled, just leveled. Yeah, I have not had the same amount of tragedies and issues, but it's a stressful and weird time because we're all being forced to transition into these different things. And some of us are more fortunate than others. That's 100% true. And I acknowledge the privilege of it entirely. Uh, If I sound like a frog, it's because I have been sick. I have but tested luckily, negative. You're negative. I have, I have tested negative despite showing all signs of COVID-19. But wasn't oh. it, I just saw an article that it's like a 30% false negative rate. At well, least. that's that's two false negatives in my house in three weeks because three weeks ago, one of my sons, exact same symptoms, but he got a negative. So I forced him to help us move to a new house and he carried stuff, which activated his respiratory wheezing yeah. issues so then he he stepped down so then i moved my whole house over a course of a week in a pickup truck and then i got sick so i've been sequestered in the back room away from my family until yesterday i couldn't even pet my dogs oh poor pups poor pups oh. i had a cat cough today and now i'm terrified that i'm an asymptomatic covid carrier and i've infected one of my cats yeah like that tiger at the bronx zoo Exactly. And there was a cat in Belgium as well, I believe. <laughs> Trying to remember, but it's just one of these things like, oh, if one of my cats dies from the plague and I'm an asymptomatic carrier, I will never forgive myself. Although I guess there's, there's a link here. There's a link to our guest today, who is Dr. Sam Erlocker at Baylor University, because he looks at energetic trade-offs between things like resting metabolic rate, which is the bare minimum amount of energy you expend to just survive and do nothing, and immune costs when there's a high immune burden. Although granted the population he works with, which is the Schwar, are not, at least at the moment, as far as we know, dealing with something like COVID, but they have a fairly high parasitic load. So he might have some very interesting insights into this COVID outbreak. But yeah, no, it's been crazy. It's just, it's unprecedented. I'm sitting at home and I'm getting work done or I'm, you know, shredding my forearms, building chicken wire cages for my garden beds. And I feel extremely useless. Yeah, it's, it's a weird time for sure. My circadian rhythm's thrown off. I can't get up before 11 or go to bed before three or four. It's just whacked out. So when I, mean, I used to force myself up early to do my writing, mm-hmm. I realize now I just have to sort of adjust and I do my writing better now after dark. I mean, I'm similar. As you know, I would get up at like 20 to five every day. And now I I roll out of bed at like 730. That's late for me. Yeah. So I get it. Everything is just 
kind of topsy-turvy upside in down. And the, the boundaries between home and work. Yeah. Are there boundaries? Hey, Sam. Hey, Sam. <laughs> hey. You have joined us talking about the very thing we were going to ask you about first, which is oh, how man. you're managing the chaos of our new reality. I don't know if I'm doing it well. <laughs> um, no, I feel like this week I'm finally getting settled into routine a little bit. It's good. Which is a nice feeling because it was all, of course, chaos there at the start. Mm -hmm. And I'd actually been traveling in Europe and Portugal with my mm. mom when this all started happening. Wow. So we had to scramble to even make it back. Then we bought a new house. My wife and I, our first home here. Thank you. So there's been a... Did you have to move in the middle of it? Fortunately, we had like thrown boxes in before. But then everything else, I mean, paintings on the walls, building Ikea bookshelves, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. all of that is in the works. So there's kind of yeah. never any list of stuff. But then, yeah. of course, most of the time just getting classes online. Yeah. Yeah. How are you managing classes right now? How's that going for you? It's going well. You know, I have great students. I'm teaching a course, Human Biological Variation this semester. So it's great. And it's upper level. So Students are a little more, I think, able to handle a change mid-semester than some freshmen who haven't had things online before. I'm My seeing this right <laughs> now because I have one class that is entirely freshmen and I have one class that is entirely upperclassmen. And the upperclassmen are getting things in and yeah. like maintaining a good level, whereas the freshmen, it's all up until the last minute. And they're stressed, man. They are all so stressed out. Yeah, we've taken, you know, I think like, many universities we're now the system they can elect at the end of the semester whether mm -hmm. to go pass fail grade i think that was good for people you know i've been really relaxed in my yeah my deadlines and working with those people that have problems with reliable internet mm -hmm. or have family members they're taking care of now or doing all these new exactly. life things that of course have precedent so i think our approach has been good that this is clearly a major life ordeal. Yeah. We just want to do the best that we can. <laughs> I think it's yeah. a good time to revisit the interview we did with Susan Bloom, mm -hmm. whose advice was basically, why don't you just ask the students what grades they think they deserve? Yeah, at this point, yeah, that's so. what it is. And yeah, no, I've done similar things. So Notre Dame has adopted the pass-fail option as well. And there are due dates, but I have the turn-in time. As long as you get it to me by the end of the semester, it's counting. So the due okay. dates are there for folks who like some structure and, you know, be able to maintain some sort of routine. Yeah. But other than that, get out of this what you can. So like I have students working in healthcare and then just time zones. There's no way we can no. teach a synchronous class because the student's in different time zones. Yeah, it's been tough. I think I've certainly had stress dealing with this. But I'm constantly reminding myself how lucky I am. I have a job that I can do online. Mm -hmm. I have health care. I have a house now. You know, I have all these things. I don't have to worry about a lot of things many people are worrying about much more right now. So mm -hmm. I think it's kind of well, recognizing it's not the case for everyone. You're a Baylor, Sam, right? It's your is yes. it your first year? First year. Started in the fall, yeah. Congrats. Thanks. That, that program has really gelled as an exceptional human bio evolutionary medicine program. We haven't gotten to talk to anybody else from that program, I don't think yet, even though I, I interact with Michael a fair amount. Why don't you tell us about what you guys got going on there? I was thrilled to be able to join a department that is honestly very overall harmonious and that everyone 
kind of wants the same things for the department and everybody's willing to work together to get there. And that thing is more of a focus on health, mm-hmm. you know, broadly conceived, the anthropology of health, and that's the PhD program that we're going to get started. You mentioned Michael Muhlenbein, who, you know, came in as chair a few years ago. He then brought on Mark Flynn from Missouri, who has, you know, long-term study in Dominica with kids and families, all kinds of cool things. Alan Schultz, Julie Hogarth, lots of other people are there. So we think we have a good core and we're growing, we're hiring. So we're, we're are you building. Still hiring? We're, we're bringing someone on, yeah, next year, nice. a geneticist, an anthropological geneticist. And then that was a done deal. If, if negotiations yeah. were in process before like the pandemic hit, it's all good. But like anything future plans yeah. right now are shut down. I know it's tough. Yeah, hopefully very soon, hopefully fall 2021, starting our PhD program in, in health. And it's going to be very much targeted to train students for both jobs inside and outside mm-hmm. of academia. Oh, that's um, so doing internships with local organizations and taking classes in public health and statistics all over. Mm-hmm. So the, the goal is to give people a you know, rounded education where they could pursue research or, or something else. Yeah. We're, so we've got a lot, I think. That's good. That's good. So let's back up. Why don't you tell us how you got to this point? What's your educational background? Mm. Why anthropology and why pursue another career? into the sausage of Sam. The sausage of Sam. This is a complex, <laughs> complexly crafted sausage, maybe. Yeah. Well, I don't know how common this is. You know, I, I, I should say before we start that I'm, you know, a big sausage of science fan. Oh. <laughs> I'm a regular listener. So I'm, you know, pretty excited to be honest. I, I, so you know what ridiculousness to expect from us on a regular basis. Oh, of course. Expect the unexpected. <laughs> expect the puns from Chris. I know what's coming. So Very I told my mom, I told my grandma, you know, you should really Aww. expect a big surge in listeners this week as the Erlocker yes. clan chimes in. <laughs> so, you know, and I was thinking back about this and I don't know how common this answer is, but I didn't even know the word anthropology growing up. I did not know what anthropology <laughs> was. I had no idea. I don't think I learned until college, you know, what anthropology was. But I think I kind of, without knowing it, had the anthropological spirit from an early age. So I'm from Montana. You know, I grew up hiking, backpacking, fishing, asking kind of questions about where humans fit in nature, how ecosystems work. Hmm. Also grew up next to a Native American reservation for the, the Crow Indian tribe. And I had Crow friends and I got exposed to that a lot. So I had an interest in in cultural diversity and in all the inequalities and health disparities that kind of come along that and that were apparent on the reservation. So I think that stuff really stuck with me. And I had all that from that earlier age and then got to college and I was a a big athlete growing up, just sports all the time. And I ended up getting the opportunity to go to Brown University in Rhode Island to, to be on the track team. And I mean, I think I've left Montana twice in my life at that point. <laughs> this was a, a major leap for me, but I wanted to experience different places, different people, different things for you know, at least a few years. I think I was kind of expecting I'd go back. And then I got to college, and as you know, one coming from a working class family does, you know, my sister and I were the first to go to college. I thought about a career where we'd make money. 
<laughs> so anthropology you know? it was. <laughs> anthropology it was not. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I started out in engineering. Yeah, I was good at math. We'll try engineering. And the electives I was taking were various things, including some cultural anthropology courses, which I thought were fun. But then it all really changed when I took my first biological anthropology class, intro to biological anthropology or human evolution, I don't remember what it was, with uh, Steve McGarvey, who I'm sure you all know, been working in Samoa forever. And it was just the perfect class, the perfect person to teach that class to me, just the perfect storm. Steve's very blue collar and no nonsense and brilliant and hilarious. And he was just kind of perfect to introduce me to this subject that really was synthesizing lots of different things. I was interested in nature and people and health, all these great things. So I got more and more into, you know, taking Steve's courses and there weren't many biological anthropologists at Brown. So he kind of took me under his wing and he, you know, eventually convinced me that research was something I could do, which I had never even thought about. <laughs> you know, he took me to Samoa eventually, to oh, American, cool. where I spent a summer. Oh, nice. uh, you know, when I became interested in endocrinology and doing some lab work, he got me hooked up and got me into a lab there in Providence, taught me what academia was, essentially, because I had no idea how to get a PhD or why you would want one. But he introduced me to that. So it was... Uh, it's great. I owe a lot to Steve. And then just discovering Peter Ellison's work, reproductive ecology, and that integration of the, the physiology that I love so much really convinced me that this is what I wanted. And I was lucky to be able to go and, and be in Peter's lab. And the rest is, is history. So where'd you do your PhD? At Harvard with Peter Ellison and Karen Kramer mm-hmm. before she moved to Utah. Yeah. Okay. And then you and I are kind of academic siblings. I would believe it. Yeah, yeah. We are. I mean, like through Herman, because I mean, you did a postdoc with Herman. And so, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, wait, he has not mentioned Michigan. It's true. Oh my goodness. We have, we have a guest not mentioning Michigan. Is it possible? Thank God. There's an anti-Michigan bias going on here today. Got no Michigan, no Notre Dame. Yeah, but we are somewhat siblings. Yeah, because I ended up then doing my postdoc with Herman Ponser at Hunter and then at, at Duke. So, of course, that yeah. ties us all together. Wow. Which oh, so did you, you prefer, North Carolina or New York City? You know, I was in North Carolina very briefly, like a year and not even there the whole time. Mm. New York, I'm so glad I lived there, but I'm so glad I don't now, mm. especially right now. Now, yeah. But um, period, you know, it's just, it's amazing. There are so many stimuli and it's <laughs> so great and you can do anything you want and it's exciting, but that also just wears on you. And, I miss feeling ground down and not able to appreciate anything around me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Let's bring it back. So we read one of your papers. The constraints and trade-offs regulate energy expenditure during childhood. And all this looks at the dual energetic demands of high levels of physical activity and high immune burden among Shuar children. And so when Chris and I were starting our little intro, made the connection of high immune burden, which is something we are currently witnessing globally (laughs) due to one particular virus and so we'll bring it back to COVID at the end so just heads up that's coming but first how did you get involved with the Schwar group before you even start talking about this paper and what you found the Schwar group has been popping up in publications all over the place so give us a little background on that yeah you know I I think pretty early in in graduate school I I decided that I wanted to, to focus on immune activity that I was really interested in immunity and 
ecoimmunology and how different individuals in different populations respond to immune activity. So the Schwar Health and Life History Project then, this group with the Schwar had been doing some really cool work in that area. I spoke Spanish, uh, which was helpful, and I was already really interested in Amazonian peoples for lots of different reasons. So I decided to reach out to Larry Sugiyama and Josh Snodgrass, who are the directors of that project, about the, the possibility of getting involved. And it all ended up being that they needed someone to come down and help in the field that summer. So I came down and I think we just got along well and interests and personalities and everything aligned and was kind of able to keep up with it. So I'm really excited to now be one of the, the co-directors of the project. So to be able to you know, help kind of design our trajectory moving forward from here, which is pretty cool. So why don't you give us a big picture? What's going on with that project? Yeah, so our project is really growing, you know, as we get more people and more people kind of moving through the ranks and into faculty positions like myself. So we're, we're starting to kind of formalize some procedures and some of the ways we do things a little better to make this a more, more sustainable project moving into the future. Yet, I think at the same time, one of the things we want to do is, is keep the project a bit smaller so it has a smaller footprint on the communities where we work. You know, we think for the kinds of questions we ask about health and life history and market integration, being able to, to live in the communities and really get that context of being there with the people is really important. So, you know, this is what we do. We're not a big panel project, typically going to lots of different communities. We try to, you know, one or two communities a field season really zero in on and build up those relationships. So it's a, it's a little bit more focused approach. How did it get started? Did Larry start it or Josh start it? I've seen many, many pubs come out of the group, but where is it and who started it? So Larry started it back in 2005. So he had been doing some work in, in other parts of the Amazon in Peru with the Shiwiar, with the Achuar, closely related neighboring indigenous groups, but then had kind of gone over to start checking out the Shuar and had met some collaborators, you know, started getting integrated with the Ministry of Health and importantly, the, the Shuar Indigenous Federation, phenomenal indigenous federation. That's kind of the, the gold standard in the region there. It's been around since I think the 60s. Perfect. So we got involved with them and that kind of laid the groundwork. He, you know, started bringing a few people here and there to help with the research projects and eventually designing their own work. It's kind of reached out and I've since, you know, brought in the Department of Education now is getting involved since I work a lot with kids and I'm interested in schools. You know, I'm starting some new collaborations with PhD MDs, local Ecuadorians in Quito at the university there. So we're at that stage where we feel like we're getting big enough. We're trying to bring together more local collaborators and trying to, you know, create more applied components for our project, which I think, you know, is the general shift in how we think we can best help and benefit our participants. So sure. that's really where we are right now. This harkens back to our first interview with Alex Bruis about her work in communities in India and how to really integrate the local people into what you're doing since it's it burdens them having research but it also impacts them when you have the results and you're able to apply it so that's really wonderful to hear so let's talk about the actual research that we read about in your paper what were you looking at and why the primary objective of this paper was really to investigate how children 
spend calories in, in populations or in environments that have to deal with heavy burdens of, of physical and immune activity. I mean, that was kind of the key here. So as I know, you're aware, Kara, but the, the standard model, right, in kind of public health and nutrition is, is something for understanding how people or how kids spend calories is, is kind of an, an additive model mm-hmm. where it has the assumption that if you're habitually spending more calories on any specific task like physical activity, you're going to be habitually spending more total calories overall. It's kind of a one-to-one additive relationship there. However, I think evolutionary biologists have kind of been challenging that for quite a while, although not directly in showing these energy constraints in trade-offs, these, these concepts derived from evolutionary life history theory that really suggests that when an, an individual starts spending more calories on any one specific metabolic task, typically what actually happens is that there are trade-offs, there are metabolic adjustments in that individual or that population, if they evolve that way, will spend less elsewhere kind of balance the checkbook and and maybe spend roughly the same total number of calories overall. So this is something Herman Ponser, right, is now calling the constrained model for energy expenditure. And of course, understanding this has real implications for understanding the ideology of obesity and energy balance and whether that energy intake or energy expenditure, you know, may really lie at at the center of this obesity transition we're experiencing across the globe. And so why the shawar? So looking at all these things, bring, bring the shawar into this trade-off between immune function and physical activity. So we knew that the shawar from work we've done before experienced kind of these energetically challenging conditions that we were interested in that are kind of in contrast to what kids in the U.S. experience, for example. We know they were being much much more physically active from data that we have. And we knew that their immune burden, their immune activity and infectious disease burden were were really heavy. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What does that look like? What do you mean when you say their physical activity level looks a little bit different, their immune burden's a little bit different? Spell that out for us. So what what we show in this paper, for example, was that something around around 25% more time spent in moderate, vigorous physical activity among the Schwar compared to industrialized references measured Are with accelerometry. So they're engaging in all kinds of foraging activities. Okay. They're constantly playing outside. If they go to school, they're not full days of school. So it's a very active lifestyle where they're actively engaged in all the horticultural and foraging and hunting activities that their that their parents are generally even at these pretty young ages. So, no so we League of Legends or Fortnite yet. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Maybe and, coming. Sadly. Maybe. And then, what about the immune burden? So, what sort of things are they being faced with? Yeah. So, I mean, they face, and this was one of the reasons I was interested in the Amazon region. You know, has a off the charts in a lot of respects, infectious disease burden. I mean, as far as parasites, viruses, you know, soil transmitted helminths is something that our research group has focused on a lot as a persistent burden for kids and adults as well. So a study that I published here about a year before this paper, that was the the meat of my dissertation work really showed that this heightened immune activity among short kids was associated with a trade-off with growth. 
Mm. So that kids who are investing more calories and immune activity, both over the short term and over the long term, were growing less over mm. those same periods. So we had good insight into these two things, physical activity and immune activity, being really energetically costly. And if we were going to believe the additive model, we would then say, well, then sure, kids should be spending many more calories every day than kids living in the U.S. who are living relatively sedentary lifestyles, you know, have access to medicine and hyper-sterile environments, don't have to deal with this infectious challenge. Now, your immune function proxy, you're looking at immunoglobulin G, is that right? In this specific paper, that's the one we picked out, (laughs) Uh, but we have a wider panel. So how are you doing this? How are you measuring immune function? So in general, in the project, you know, what we've been focusing on are things like inflammation with CRP, C-reactive protein, different immunoglobulins and G and E being kind of the major ones that are the most abundantly produced immunoglobulin and the one that responds most to macroparasites like helminths with IgE. So we think those are both important for different reasons. I've also looked at Epstein-Barr virus antibodies before, so cell-mediated immune activity proxy there. But now we're collecting a wider measures of cytokine profiles and other things. So is this serum, blood spot, saliva? Yep. This project, as I mentioned, started in 2005. I almost have little cohorts now that I work with from these communities since 2011, 12, 13. So many years. So we have you know, taken a firm position that we're not collecting any serum or any venous blood at all. So, you know, it's all minimally invasive. So for the immune markers, it, it's mostly finger prick dried blood spot samples, gotcha. which then in, in Josh Snodgrass's lab and now in my lab, validating all these assays specifically mm-hmm. for that medium, you know, against serum samples. So, right, right. so mm-hmm. keeping it minimally invasive, especially with kids. Yeah. yeah. Of course. And so what was the big takeaway? What is the, the big aha from this paper? Yeah, I mean, the big aha was... As I mentioned, no surprise, they're Schwar kids, much more physically active. It's 20% more, 25% more moderate, vigorous physical activity. There also, we measured resting energy expenditure here. So using respirometry, which was the first time it had been done in a subsistence-based population of kids. And we showed their resting energy expenditure was way elevated. So Schwar kids spending about 200 calories a day more Mm. in this basal metabolism than kids living in the U.S. And we showed this is related to immune activity, at least to some degree. And I would take it that, given what you said, that the Schwar kids are also smaller than American kids at the same age. And so that 200 calories per day more is actually relatively a whole lot more, given body size differences. No, it is that. Okay, so so that's the corrected, okay. Those are corrected averages. So yeah, we uh, took it for our, our median body size for the model with everybody in there. So this is saying when we correct for lean body mass. Okay. How do Schwarz kids and Americans look the same? You're absolutely right. They're smaller. Mm -hmm. I definitely want to talk about that more. But when we look at the same size kids, Schwarz in in the US and UK, what we find is they're spending way more calories on immune activity. They're engaging in much more physical activity, yet the total number of calories they spend every day is no different Mm -hmm. than kids living in the US and in the UK. So this was, you know, kind of surprising (laughs) for a lot of people. How does that happen? Not so much for us. Well, this was the prediction we had based on some of the studies that 
Herman Ponser had done and shown this kind of similar thing where the Hadza foragers that he works with in Tanzania actually had no elevation in their total energy expenditure compared to U.S. and industrialized references as well. Mm-hmm. So we'd seen this in adults. We didn't have any idea how it worked in kids because nobody had actually measured instead of just estimated energy expenditure before these groups. And this is what we find. Uh, and we think it's really good support for this constrained model. But of course, it opens up a lot of questions, as you're saying, Chris, about where are these underlying physiological trade-offs mm-hmm. actually taking place? And so now it's the fun part for me where I get to chase that down. <laughs> and so is growth the avenue you think, or at least the avenue you're going down right now, as you say, they're a lot smaller, that this energy is being expended on physical activity and a high immune burden. And so they're much smaller, or do you have other thoughts on what's going on? Yeah, so we think, you know, where this energy is being, you know, saved, if you want to call it that, is, is probably in a number of different places. It may relate a little bit to exercise efficiency, a little bit to possible differences in kind of diurnal patterns of basal metabolism, which I'm really interested in. But we do think that this growth piece is a really important point. So to me, the entire constrained model kind of depends upon this process of growth. And the way I think about that is if constraints is really emphasizing trade-offs as determinant of developmental plasticity and phenotypic plasticity, we know that childhood is a much more plastic and energetically interesting period than I think we thought for a long time. We know now that childhood seems to be a unique human life stage. We know that a lot of lifetime metabolic patterns actually first appear during childhood. We know that childhood is when brain metabolic costs actually peak. So there are all these reasons to be interested in the energetics of childhood. But I think we as anthropologists for a long time just kind of said energetically, they're just kind of in pause mode, hanging out well, they learn to do things. I don't know. I think this constraint that is clearly there really sets the stage for trade-offs. I mean, just to play the devil's advocate, and I don't really believe this, but I could see a popularization of this saying, well, gee whiz, if their transition to sedentism, which is seemingly inevitable given the modernization and globalization and metabolic disorders that are going around, they're going to be just fine. They're going to transition. They'll sit on couches and play video games like the rest of us. Maybe they'll grow taller then. They'll be less physically active as children and thereby manifest a taller phenotype. What do you think? Well, how I think growth is really involved here is growth, if we're saying that lean body mass is the strongest predictor, as we see in many studies of total energy expenditure, then growth is our most direct regulator of how much energy we are going to spend across our entire life, right? It's really the barometer of the environment. And your ability to grow plastically is basically your response to map on as best as you can to the environment that you're living in. If we think that these high immune activity costs, for example, are going to be a persistent burden throughout life, there's no expectation throughout most of human history that that would change right? It could be this kind of predictive adaptive response where your metabolism is shifting, you're growing smaller, and at the same time, your metabolism is shifting to more readily store body fat to kind of meet those energy challenges in the future and buffer, you know, reproduction in the future instead of growth. 
So you're getting smaller. And of course, what we see is that growth faltering, stunting is associated with increased likelihood to be obese as an adult. Mm-hmm. Right? This is the, the dual or double burden of child growth stunting and adult obesity. Right. This impacts millions, millions of individuals. So there clearly is a metabolic link between poor growth in the energetic challenges that surround it early in life and a lifetime likelihood to become obese and to put on body fat. Hmm. And so we're kind of trying to understand a lot of the work I'm doing now, those pathways. And we're, we're looking at gut microbiome hmm. composition and how those shifts might be related. We're looking at some hormonal mediators of some of this energy use. And as I mentioned, we're now collecting data from these same groups of kids for many years. So we're seeing them to start transition through puberty hmm. and elsewhere to now get longitudinal measures of how their energy allocation and their energy patterns are actually changing across life as they're experiencing all these crazy life changes associated with market integration. So we're kind of trying to understand this ontogeny. Yeah. There are a lot of questions. Yeah. No, it's cool stuff. I imagine all plans for summer work have been suspended then at this point. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you know, it's no surprise because we, we talked about it in the intros. They have a high immune burden, and I can't believe anyone would even think of traveling there right now and bringing exactly. out there. But I also want to make the connection of just kind of your thoughts. So American population, for the most part, we are energy replete, and we don't have to worry as much about a number of these trade-offs that you're talking about. However, we now have a lot of folks who are experiencing an increased immune burden. And I was just wondering, what has the impact of COVID-19 come into your mind at all and how it relates to your work? It has. And, you know, I'm not sure how much constraint is really going to play a role yeah. here. <laughs> I can't imagine much, at least America. At least no. And, and the thing with constraint that I always have to remind people to do, well, two things I always remind people. Exercise is still really important for health, right? Mm-hmm. I should get that in right now <laughs> for cardio health, for pulmonary health, probably really important for energy balance because it regulates right appetite and all these other things that indirectly could contribute and impact diet. So lots of ways. But the other thing is that this entire constraint model is talking about habitual chronic energy use patterns. So, you know, we only expect the body to adjust over time. And exercise studies with adults, for example, when you, when you start a new exercise regime, seems like it might take several months and you can talk more about this than I can care before, you know, any kind of metabolic adjustment may actually start to take place in this constraint kicking in. It only makes sense evolutionarily that this would impact kind of chronic energy use and prevent long-term negative energy balance. When we're talking about short-term, you're going to experience potentially dramatic trade-offs if you don't have enough energy available. But if you have enough body fat, or if you have, you know, enough extra diet that you can bring into your system, you can, you know, have this situation where you're increasing everything altogether, phenotypic correlation and not experiencing any trade-offs at all. So this is kind of what I had shown in that the paper I mentioned looking at growth and immune trade-offs with short kids. What we showed was for the, the short immune challenges, those inflammation bursts that only last about a week, is kids that had enough body fat were able to actually completely buffer the growth detriment that was normally caused by that CRP spike. So if you have enough, you can draw on it for the short term, but the buffering mechanism seemed to dissipate when you looked at longer term measures. That was just making me think that I, I at the moment was thinking of very short term, but while you were speaking, 
the long-term economic impact of COVID, the number of people out of jobs, and making me wonder about kids born over the mm-hmm. next two to three years of what impact we actually might see because of the economic downturn associated with this pandemic. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think when you're thinking about the immediate impact energetically, people are going to burn a lot more calories when they're sick, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially if they, you know, develop sepsis or, you know, have a, a cytokine storm or all these other things we're hearing about. They're going to spend a lot more calories. This infection doesn't seem to last long enough where it could probably start to initiate any kind of metabolic adjustment involving constraint. But as you mentioned, I think for children and for individuals who are pregnant or otherwise who are at these stages where phenotype could be plastic and could respond to the energetic conditions experienced, there could be lasting effects potentially. And I also think that, you know, adults today that had different immune experiences early in their lives probably we're going to discover have different levels of susceptibility to coronavirus and to severity of symptoms. I think it's only likely allergies and asthma, for example. I was thinking about that earlier, but I I wanted to ask if you're in touch with the Shuar now. I've tried to be limited as best as I can through Facebook, but that's if people go to town. So we have uh, some friends in the market center nearby. We've been checking in on Last I saw two days ago when the report came out, there were 10 cases, confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the district of the Amazon district of Ecuador, Milona Santiago. There are reports all over the internet of Amazonian indigenous groups fleeing into the Amazon up rivers to, to escape it. And that's terrifying if, of mm. course, they themselves are infected and are bringing this out there. So. Yeah. I'm horrified by the prospect there and, you know, my other field site that I'm really involved in is in Papua New Guinea, where the health infrastructure is even worse. And I think, as you mentioned, Kara, it's everyone's responsibility to not mm-hmm. even have the slightest risk of, you know, yeah. transmitting anything with the populations that they work with that might be susceptible. That was going to be my final question. Ethically, we can't potentially expose any of the folks that we work with to anything. Everyone needs to socially distance, research distance, et cetera. So what do you do in the summer to keep yourself busy? Fortunately, or unfortunately, I don't know, I have uh, plenty of other things to do. Isn't <laughs> so it like I, the list is never shortened? <laughs> no, it's never not shortened. shortened. It's changed slightly. No, so there won't be, I was planning field trips with new health collaborators in both Ecuador and Papua New Guinea this summer. So those are both probably done. My lab, where I now have this doubly labeled water isotope equipment, you know, I'm still finishing getting set up and doing validation things and getting a bunch of biomarker assays online now as well. There's a lot of work to be done in the lab and then to start to collect some data in the lab eventually here this summer. But really writing, you know, the, yep. the follow-up paper to this one you read is the second half of my postdoc where I actually collected the same data from Schwar kids living in town mm. in a you know, pretty urban area. And that is a much more direct comparison, of course, than using these industrial country yeah. reference data. Oh, you got a teaser for us? Um, you're going to see more of the same. We much, can also just bring you back on when that paper comes yeah. in. Yeah, and much, much cooler data where I'm able to <laughs> dig into lots of different immune markers now, diet, lifestyle, 
full panel of data I have for that one. And then now tying in the gut microbiome stuff in another paper too. So it's pretty oh, cool. Nice. So as you mentioned, you're getting your lab set up. And as we talked about at the beginning of bringing you on, this is a new position. This is your first tenure track position. So congratulations. Thank you. And to, to put this on a high note or end with something like a bit of a dark conversation. Uh, any advice for folks starting their first tenure track position or a new position this fall? What things might you want to impart on them? So people who already have the job and are starting. Yes, they've had the offer somebody. and they're starting in the oh. fall. So brand new folks. Well, congratulations. First of all. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, you know, a lot of the advice that I got that I think has been really good for my, my sanity was to just expect my productivity to be low for the first year. <laughs> Honestly, you know, you get in there, you just want to do everything right away in the lab and the field the teaching. And I think I came into it with pretty, I still feel like I'm not accomplishing what I should, but, but a more realistic vision of needing to get my classes set up, mm. get a routine with teaching, being comfortable with that, all the obstacles that come with getting a lab set up and just getting equipment there and everything else. The layers so, of bureaucracy for purchasing equipment. Yes. Layers. <laughs> layers of My own personal hell. <laughs> it's been tough. So I think if you come in with the right mindset that, you know, first year, just get everything organized, get a bunch of things ready to go. And now I just feel like, especially with this writing sabbatical I now have, that, you know, I'll be able to get a lot done. So that's a big thing. And no pressure. So no temper expectations about productivity <laughs> is, is the big take-home message, I think, for people starting a new position. I think for your first semester, first year, yeah, be realistic about what you're going to need to do. And I think that's kept me grounded a little bit. <laughs> it's, it's been really easy for me, though, because my department and my colleagues are so great. I just don't have to worry about any department stuff uh, like I know a lot of people do. And everybody's been really supportive. And so it's been, it's been exciting. I'm really, really enjoying it. So what else do you do? What do you do for fun? What are you listening to? Reading? Fun? What's that? <laughs> What's <know>. that? <laughs> Hobbies? Yeah. So I've, you know, especially during this, been trying to get some exercise going again. So, it's not easy with all the gyms closed. I have completely forgotten what it feels to have a barbell on my back at this point, And that makes me <laughs> want to cry. I've been trying to get some cardio going, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, one thing I did not keep up on this first year was, yeah, my, uh, my exercise. But so I've been trying to do that. I mentioned I grew up hiking and fishing, so I've been trying to kind of find those things around here a little bit too, which has been fun. do love to read, but, but lately it's been not a lot of it. <laughs> this past month, it's been more when my wife and I are ready to unwind at the end of the night, like... Uh, mm -hmm an episode of The Office kind of thing. Ah. Yeah. Tried and true. Uh, can't go wrong with it. Can't go wrong it's with it. It's a that. comfort thing now. I think like our generation, The Office is a comfort show. Definitely. I did recently read an autobiography of Alexander von Humboldt, which was pretty awesome. <laughs> mm. So I would highly recommend that one. The sly look on your face when talking about that was hilarious. Well, I get made fun of because I love biographies and autobiographies. So, uh, yeah, no, we, we accept all types on this podcast. No worries. Hamilton, you know, was the start of all of it. I yeah. saw the 
saw the musical, so I had to read the... The tone. <laughs> I have just downloaded the biographies of Booker T. Jones from Booker T. and the MGs and mm. Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So I'm with nice. A little different. Flea will be an interesting today. one, I'm sure. Yeah. I yeah, have escaped fun. into science fiction, so I've taken a different route from you two <laughs> during okay. the pandemic. Well, um, I still have Westworld, so um, don't forget that. You know, I, I can't. I've watched the first season, and I just can't bring myself to watch the second. I love the first season, but everyone has said the second doesn't live up, and I just, I can't get there. Oh, no. Anyway, so, Sam, how can folks get a hold of you? Because I know you're active on Twitter, but what's your handle, and what are other ways folks can learn about your stuff? Yeah, on Twitter, I'm at SS Erlocker. My last name sounds like a battleship, but it's actually my Twitter name. I am intermittently active on there. Are you looking for grad students or anything? I am, so I'm actually, I accepted, I'm going to have my first grad student um, huh. taken through the biology department or the secondary appointment until our program comes on next year. But Congrats. She, yeah, I'm really excited. She's um, Chilean, has done work in the Atacama Desert, interested in nutrition transitions. She's going to be great to work on the Schwab project. Do you have a website that you want to promote so people can actually go and see anything you're doing? You're like, I have a website. <laughs> if you Google me, you will see my, you know, Baylor page and then my personal webpage, which has You'll some see more. the the Navy ship SS Erlocker and then his website. Yeah, check perfect. <laughs> uh, well, Sam, this has been great. Your work is. It's truly fascinating, and I, I think it's definitely one of those that's moving in the direction that is kind of the future of human biology and looking at these intersection of things that we've basically been studying in isolation for decades at this point. So great stuff is going to be coming from you and out of your lab, and we look forward to seeing it. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. I, I wasn't lying about being a fan of this podcast. It's great. So really appreciate you doing it. It's, it's awesome. It's been a pleasure. 